You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Good morning, listeners. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast on your 3CR community radio station. And uh, today we're going to... This is the last program for the year. We don't... Don't worry, we do have summer programming. We'll be bringing you a whole host of really interesting uh, pieces of uh, information from the past as well as some new stuff over the summer break. But uh, this is the last program and today we're focusing on environment. I didn't start out that way, but uh, environment and politics just have washed up on the beach on the shore this morning and uh, it's unavoidable. We've got Jeff Waters. He's from uh, Friends of the Earth. He's an offshore gas campaigner and he's fulfilled my greatest wish. He's come in to talk to us about why there should be no bailout for energy sector already getting almost five times more in subsidies than they pay in tax. And uh, so we're going to have a chat with uh, Jeff about that. We've also got some material from uh, the court case, uh, outside the court case and inside the court case of uh, uh, Violet Coco, the uh, a climate activist in New South Wales who was uh, first um, uh, given a sentence of 15 months for uh, a peaceful demonstration that stopped one line, lane of traffic in Sydney on the Sydney Harbour Bridge for 25 minutes. Um, <laughs> 15 months, there you go. But it, that was uh, whittled down to eight months. And at this particular hearing, she was given a uh, bail um, or uh, um, an order, you know, she's not in jail anymore. I don't remember what the legal term is, but it means that she's got to behave herself and has very restrictive uh, um, arrangements around her personal life if she wants to remain out of prison. But anyway, Vivian from the Climate Action Show, Vivian Langford, was there and uh, we've got some material that uh, explores what happened on the day. Lillian Bartow, who's from Frontline Action on Coal, has is going to have a chat with us about the legal response as uh, it, it escalates and the issue of jailing... Um, Uh, climate activists because they have an intimate knowledge of this and uh, the rising level of uh, political prisoners uh, around climate action. We're going to explore generational change or redefinition of criminality 
maybe it should be extractivist economics and uh, those who propose it who are the real criminals. This is the week that was. Kevin's going to talk to us. And funnily enough, he took up the theme. I hadn't even spoken to him, but he's got the same theme. And uh, Judith Peppard, um, who uh, uh, produces material for Earth Matters, uh, is going to come in and talk to us about the forest strategy launch that was held on Tuesday the 13th of January. Uh, Jara in Bendigo. Uh, it's going to be a feature in January for Earth Matters, but she thought it was so important that um, she's going to come in and share some stuff with us and have a chat. But before we do, a bit of information from the gods at 3CR. <laughs> Make your gift giving meaningful this year with a festive gift from Children's Ground. A First Nations-led organisation, Children's Ground creates holistic, long-term change with First Nations children, their family and community. Choose from gifts designed by Children's Ground artists or our change-making digital gift cards. You'll receive a digital card to email or to print at home. It's the gift that's guaranteed to arrive on time. Go to childrensground.org.au to shop or learn more. Children's Ground is a 3CR supporter. And on the theme of uh, Christmas gifts, season greetings and all that sort of stuff, just to give you the heads up that uh, there's going to be a pop-up shop at 3CR this morning uh, with a whole lot of... Uh, 3CR gear that you might want to give to other people like Christmas. So uh, come and knock on the door and they'll let you in. And they might even have the door open. Who knows? That could be part of the uh, general um, open-handedness that goes around during the Christmas season. But as I said, uh, on 3CR Solidarity Breakfast this morning, we're going to kick off with a chat with Jeff Waters. G'day, Jeff. How are you? Good morning, Annie. I'm very well. It's a very beautiful morning. It and is. good morning, listeners. Yeah, that's right. As I was telling everybody, I was so pleased when I re- read your uh, media release from uh, Friends of the Earth about uh, your perspective on no bailout for energy sector. Can you give us a, a bit of an idea about why this is such an important uh, feature of our politic at the moment? Well, certainly, as you know, uh, this week there was a vote, a special sitting of Parliament, where they voted on uh, a, uh, a new bill that would put restrictions on the prices of gas and, and coal, uh, as well as um, uh, compensation, or not compensation, but support for poor people and their, uh, in their uh, having to pay ridiculously high gas bills. That uh, they were also discussing the uh, possibility or the, the probability that they would pay the industry compensation. A sweetener. A sweetener, absolutely, to, to, to make it easy on the poor old multinational gas and oil fossil fuel production industry. And, of course, that's ridiculous and uh, out of order. And so Friends of the Earth uh, was uh, putting out, well, we put out a press release saying that this was terrible, but most particularly um, some companies were threatening to remove gas supply from the East Coast network uh, as, a res- as a response to this. And uh, the timing was, you know, 
clearly aimed at putting pressure on Parliament ahead of the vote. Uh, it was a clear case of blackmail. Uh, thankfully, the government didn't bend. Uh, and they have still, you know, this piece of legislation has been passed. I'm sure that uh, the general population in Australia finds this really bemusing considering that the gas actually is part of our natural resource. Yes. Well, we do get royalties and the states get royalties from the extraction of fossil fuels. But uh, as you said in the introduction, uh, there was a university study done recently by academics from Macquarie University and the University of Wollongong, where they proved that the gas companies are getting already, and gas, no, sorry, I keep saying gas, but what we need to remember is that we're talking about methane here, which is 96 more times more dangerous as a fossil fuel, as a uh, greenhouse gas than, uh, than is carbon dioxide, almost 90 times worse. And uh, uh, the... Um, I've lost my train of thought, Annie. No, no. The, it's um, early in the morning. Yeah, that's right. What was well, the question? Uh, well, the, <laughs> no, no, well, I digressed and I digressed for too long. No, no, that's exactly right. You did a comma and then went into a subclause <laughs> <laughs> if you're an editor. But no, no, the point of that particular Macquarie University oh, study. Oh, of course. Sorry. That they no, pay, no, this is the nub. Yes. Go on. That they pay, uh, they are paid almost five times more in subsidies than they pay in tax yeah and what on the, their and, and that that actual figure is absolutely astounding the amount of money that they the public purse puts into their coffers it's extraordinary and uh, one has to wonder exactly why Annie why is this done why do we subsidize? An industry that pollutes is. our atmosphere. Here's the figure. You've got the figure in front of you. Yeah, seventy billion dollars. Seventy billion. Seventy billion dollars uh, alone. Between this is subsidies between 2015 and 2021, right? So, not only do they make enormous profits by selling it off to uh, countries other than Australia, they make enormous amounts of profits. As someone said, oh well, actually Kevin says later on that even at the price of $12 per whatever they sell it at, what the quantity is, as they used to sell it to us, they're already making a profit. But now they're making this obscene profit from the local market. They're making an obscene profit from the foreign market. And they get subsidies from the Australian government. Now, one has to wonder, is that business or is that just some sort of Carbell or, you know, uh, gangster organisation. Well, you use the word cabal and, and, and I have to say that they act, this industry, as a cartel. They meet, they set prices. Now, that's illegal, mm. but it's allowed to take place for this industry. And yes, they're making extraordinary runaway profits as a result of what is effectively war profiteering off the shortages of uh, methane around the world due to the war in Ukraine. So, uh, and as you say, the great majority of this, of the resource is sold overseas, uh, uh, mainly to places like Japan and South Korea that don't have any fossil fuels of their own, or very few. And 95% of the profits goes abroad to these multinational companies. So any, only 5% of the profits that they're making comes to Australia. But uh, 
hey, if you're getting subsidised that much, uh, why not? <laughs> you know. Well, they make a lot of people make a lot of bones about the fact that the fossil fuel companies uh, uh, support uh, the two major political parties by millions. Uh, donations in the millions. Now, that pales into insignificance when you look at $70 billion coming out of the public purse. So it's a uh, it's a really interesting um, so- circle, isn't it? Uh, I, 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 we do have public disclosure for political donations in this country, thank heavens. Not as, it's not as transparent as it should be. So I don't think that the major... Uh, um, uh, reason that they would do this and that they would support this industry would be for political donations, although, of course, that helps. Well, yeah, because I think it's insignificant in, real, in actually on, yes. in the bigger picture. But on a personal note, what happens when you're a politician and you retire from Parliament or you get kicked out? Now, if you've played the game properly, you get a fabulous position on a board where there's no paper on the desk. You don't actually you know, sign anything or do anything. You just give your opinion every couple of months at a board meeting and get paid hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars for doing it. Uh, And these boards are all at that level. Once you get to that level, they're all interconnected. So it might be somebody from the oil industry who at a gentleman's club or at a party introduces you to the board of some other firm, a financial institution, for instance, and it's all a bit of a club. And uh, you might be offered the job and the financial. But but because you've done the right thing by the multinational companies and by the, the mega-rich and the, the you know multi-millionaire CEOs of these companies, and you've supported the club, then you're looked after. And I think it's a far, far more personal, you know, uh, human... Thing than than just political donations. Yeah, yeah, and and on another level, uh, this is important, and it's about fear. Um, I was at the IMAC uh, outside the IMAC uh, last rather violent IMAC demonstration that was here in Melbourne. Then shoot, they shot up to uh, Sydney, where that we now have these ridiculous laws. Um, but uh, this fellow came storming out and said something like uh, he'd been at the uh, thing and he was an older man. He came in and he said, you people are all just crazy, or I'm paraphrasing, you're just crazy. Um, What are you going to do without, you know, basically, what can you do without fossil fuel? It's absolutely essential, right? Uh, It's sort of, uh, it's got to the point where uh, they believe that uh, without them, the world cannot exist. Well, that's because the system and... The system, uh, unfortunately, in this country runs the extremely concentrated media and that media over the years, not, not, not including the ABC here, uh, but, you know, the, 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 the corporate media has been pushing that line for decades. So, so if I was to put, you... To, put, put to you, what would happen if overnight all these billions of dollars of subsidies stopped going to these multinationals, what would happen to our economy and uh, the Australian way of life, in inverted commas? Well, that's a very interesting thought experiment and, and I can only comment on this from that sort of broad intellectual context but what drives these companies is profit. 
and they would still make a significant profit. And they would try to sell the gas to us at international prices, as they do now before this legislation comes into effect. So it would make absolutely no difference whatsoever to the people of Australia, apart from gas prices being high, uh, as they are now. But we'd still be paying the international rate. It wouldn't go up specially for us or just for us. And uh, these companies would still be making runaway profits. It wouldn't affect them a great deal. $70 billion over 10 years isn't a lot of money to all of these people. I know it sounds extraordinary, but it's not a huge amount of money to these companies. And, uh, and they, were, it, they would have an AGM in April of 2023 where they reported a big profit to their investors and their investors would be happy. So it would make no difference in my view. Yes, so, so really what we're doing is uh, it's an ideological, it's ideological warfare, isn't it? What, we're, what we've got now uh, in the sense that... Well, it's only warfare if one side's fighting back. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway, thank you. In fact, we should talk to you again because there's so many other things that you could talk about because you're uh, part of... Uh, uh, your focus is about uh, the offshore uh, drilling uh, infrastructure. That's right. And the removal of such. Yes, because at the moment the taxpayer is going to be footing the bill for the removal of hundreds of offshore gas and oil assets and it's going to cost – I've got to put the figures together, I've got to get the numbers crunched, but it's going to cost tens of billions of dollars uh, that uh, will eventually – end up uh, being paid for by the taxpayer because these companies claim the removal of these things on tax uh, and they want to do it as cheaply and as as, <laughs> uh, 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 as they can, uh, which will result in pollution. Uh, what we need to do, and if I could just impress this upon the audience, what we all need to keep in mind is the need for a levy or a continuation of a levy that will pay for the recycling of these rigs and the 700 million tonnes of steel that's uh, in our region that needs to be recycled uh, at far less energy than it would take to make normal steel. Uh, And uh, we need to lobby the government to uh, impose a cost upon the industry to recycle these things and dispose of them properly for the environment. Thank you very much, Jeff Waters from... Friends of the Earth for coming in and talking to us about this terribly important issue of getting big business, um, big fossil fuel companies to actually pull their weight and pay their pay their way instead of forcing the Australian public to uh, pay high prices for gas and to strong arm the government to uh, uh, not govern for the uh, the people that they were elected by. Well, thanks for the invitation. Nothing like a bit of outrage to get your Saturday morning going.
piece of fascinating music uh, from yeah, the Arnhem Land Songmen, Yogul uh, Man. Um, fascinating, the uh, electronic uh, music uh, sound of the uh, electric guitar and uh, um, First Nations uh, words. Language, fantastic stuff. Uh, you're on 3CR with Annie on uh, so- Solidarity Breakfast and uh, we're going to move on to some material that was brought to us by Vivian Langford from the Climate Action Show. She was outside the uh, uh, bail hearing for uh, Violet Coco in New South Wales. Violet is the... Uh, climate activist who was uh, gathered up and was put in jail for or charged with uh, various things and was given a sentence of 15 months jail, which was whittled down to eight months. And now with the bail hearing, she has been put on um, uh, an order. Uh, She's allowed to go home, but she's on a very restrictive order. Anyway, this is uh, the information that was gleaned at that particular event Uh, uh, earlier earlier this week. Hi, my name is Vivian Langford and this is an extra item from the Climate Action Radio Show. It's because I attended a court case in Sydney for Violet Coco this week and she was released on bail. I have seen a lot of war memorials in the world but I've never seen anything dedicated to the space created by people who try to stop the madness of war. But I've just come back from New Zealand and in Dunedin, Aotearoa, I saw this national monument to conscientious objectors. It says, quote, This memorial commemorates the fate of conscientious objectors in New Zealand during the two world wars. The principal defiance of the state by conscientious objectors to military conscription has over the years helped expand the rights and liberties of all New Zealanders, pursue peace always. Fancy, the state commemorating those people who defy the state. So today we're going to the court case of Violet Coco. She was raising the alarm on the climate madness and I'd like to know if the judge who gave her bail recognised that she was one of those conscientious objectors who enlarged the civic space for all of us in defiance of the state. As Jane Morton said, when the history of this movement is written, Violet Coco and the other taking non-violent direct action will be the heroes. We interviewed Violet last year when with a group she burned a baby's pram in front of our National Parliament in Canberra. She told me then that the future climate we are creating by political obstruction made her feel too miserable to even consider having children. And now, just a week ago, she's received a jail sentence that could keep her in prison until 2024. A large crowd of trade unionists and climate activists gathered on the steps of the Downing Centre Court and you will hear from Greens MP David Shoebridge from the MUA, Unions New South Wales, CFMEU, we will start with a First Nations woman from up Lismore Way. Her name is Cindy Roberts. She had brought fresh leaves down from Lismore and burned them in a small log in front of the rally as a smoking ceremony. Inside the court, she stood holding an Aboriginal flag right where the judge, Timothy Gartleman, could see her. 
The yellow circle was transformed into a heart, and I only wished that Violet, who was in lockdown at Silverwater Prison and only visible in court on a screen, could have witnessed the tremendous, heartfelt support for her. Here's Cindy. I came to support Coco because this goes against all our human rights. You know, it goes against, uh, and not only that, as a democracy, you know, standing up for freedom, for righteousness, protecting country, our environment, the animals, the water. You know, it's all under threat if we don't oppose these laws, if we don't, you know, appeal against them. You know, these laws need to be, this new, these new laws, these anti-protesting laws need to be overturned because they are unjust, you know. It just goes to show that our system, this government, is, you know, it's, um, it's broken. It's a broken system. I wanted to just say Violet Coco wasn't in the court with us, but I wish she could have seen the support outside this morning and you standing at the back because you have this flag. It's the Aboriginal flag, but the circle is now a heart, big yellow heart, and I think you were sort of praying the whole time, were you? Is that yes, what you were doing? Yes, I was. And um, I, think, I, think, I think the judge was taken <laughs> quite, you know, yeah, anyway, yeah, wandering. But, yes, I have been praying a lot um, for Coco because when you stand up for righteousness and you're standing up for, you know, what you believe in, especially when it's, there is injustice in this country and you see the brokenness in a democracy that is under threat, then we have a responsibility to stand up and act. You know, as um, it's not about colour, it's not about race, it's not about religion, it's not about any of these things. It's about coming together and standing up for our democracy, for freedom, for protesting, for our rights, the whole lot of it, and protecting country and the and the environment. You know, so yeah. I think it's about putting the heart back into it. Having seen your flag. He did in the courthouse. Thank you. He loved it. And then afterwards I thanked him and I went up to the front and I said, thank you, Your Honour. Got a mabuga bear. And he just nodded, yeah. It was deadly. I'm in the Downing Street Court. A very happy outcome today for Violet Coco. And I'm talking to Sue Higginson, who was formerly absolutely doing hundreds of these kinds of cases for the EDO and another person from the EDO is with us. But we're in the Downing Court today uh, to hear very good news about Violet. Would you like to tell Alyssa? Yeah, absolutely. The court has made the resoundingly right decision and has granted bail to Violet Coco. It's conditional bail. There's conditions restricting her movements, making sure she is where she is and having to be of good behaviour. Um, you know, whether that's the right thing right now, whether that's necessary at the moment, everybody is just so glad that she will not spend another night in prison. It, today, the behaviour of the DPP was pretty disappointing. It was a long, drawn-out day. Violet has now spent 11 nights and days in a prison. She should never have been put there. The reason she's there is at the end of the day we are all victim to a moral hysteria of the coalition government in lockstep with Labor and we have got harsh and draconian anti-protest laws. We need to do everything we can to repeal those laws and to make sure that no other 
non-violent protester who engages in an act of peaceful, conscientious objection never goes to jail. It is such an indictment on our state that we are in this predicament. Seeing Violet today via the AVL in a prison whilst we were in a courtroom after the DPP has taken hours to get this matter on to be heard, it is shameful. Our system is in a terrible condition. Our democracy is in a terrible condition right now and no one should rest until we turn this around. I will be working around the clock to make sure these laws are repealed and that we never see such an inappropriate sentence again. But right now, we are just absolutely thrilled that the right thing has happened in the court today and that the judge has released Violet on bail and she will not have to spend another night in prison. David Shoebridge spoke to the large gathering outside the Downing Centre Court. He's a Green Senator in the Federal Parliament. Um, thanks very much for the welcome and acknowledgement of country. And I know we all gather here today and acknowledge this land is First Nations land. Always was and always will be First Nations land. It's Gadigal country and we pay our collective respects to Elders past, present and emerging. And, and wherever these fossil fuel companies want to extract their profits at the expense of land and water, that's also First Nations land and we stand in solidarity with First Nations peoples to protect land, water and air. Let's make that commitment together now. But I want to thank all of you for coming out and sending a very clear message to politicians around this country that the right to protest is a right that we take seriously. We're going to organise like it. We're going to protest about it. And at the end of the day, we're going to vote for it. Because the right to protest is essential if we want to challenge governments. And we've seen that demonstrated, haven't we, in Violet's case. Her crime was standing up for the planet against fossil fuel companies and causing the inconvenience of stopping one lane of traffic on the Harbour Bridge for 25 minutes. That was her crime, having principle and causing inconvenience. And for that, she got sentenced by laws passed by the Labor Party and the Coalition, got sentenced to a maximum sentence of 15 months in jail. She's been more than a week in a jail. Let's not forget that in the 25 minutes that Violet caused inconvenience on one lane of the Harbour Bridge, those same politicians have organised laws that gave more than half a million dollars in handouts to the fossil fuel industries. Where was the crime? Where was the crime? The crime was in Parliament. The crime was in corporate Australia. They're the ones who should be in court. Thomas Costa spoke for Unions New South Wales, who have over 600,000 members. Thank you. My name's Thomas Costa. I'm the Assistant Secretary of Unions New South Wales. During my time as a unionist and as an activist, I've been at countless rallies and protests, including outside Parliament House and including outside this place. I've picketed corporate offices and rallied outside Parliament House. I've organised strikes which have cancelled trains and bus services. I've been part of stop works that have shut down factories. I've organised walk-offs that have delayed the harvesting of farm crops. Once, as a student, I was part of a group that graffitied peace symbols across university campus to protest against the Second Iraq War. It's fair to say that I've caused my fair share of inconvenience and disruption, but despite spending the entirety of my adult life engaged in some form of protest and activism and direct action, I've never been imprisoned 
I've never been charged. I've never been arrested. I've never been on remand. I've never had my bail refused. I've never been asked to move on or be manhandled by the police. And until today, I thought that was because I lived in a democracy. I thought that we respected the right to protest in this country. Unfortunately, today we find out that's no longer true. The rights that we've taken for granted no longer can be because the New South Wales Perrottet government is taking them off us. And it's doing it because it wants to silence its dissenters. Dissenters like Violet Coco. And what about Violet? A judge will hear how she stopped her car on the highway. How she blocked one lane of traffic for 25 minutes. Causing an inconvenience and a disruption. It was a protest. The judge will hear there was no violence and no one was hurt. The court will be told that the protest was so inconvenient that it made some people feel uncomfortable. The prosecution will say that because of this, Violet should remain in prison for 15 years. Sorry, 15 months. It's still too long. Like everybody here, I know what it's like to protest. Like everybody here, I know what it's like to feel something so strongly you need to stand up. But I don't have any idea what it must feel like to be violent right now. To be waiting in a remand cell. To be forced to explain yourself before a court. To be cross-examined and to be judged. I can only imagine the fear and the anxiety but also the disillusionment with a failing system, which despite taking away her freedom claims to be a democracy. It's a disgrace and it's an indictment upon this government. Last Thursday, a motion was put to the Executive Union New South Wales. The Executive is the peak decision-making body for the union movement in this state. It represents only over 50 unions and over 600,000 union members. The resolution put to the executive called on all unions to condemn the New South Wales government. And for unions to come out and support Violet and to overturn these laws. Violet's fight is now our fight. And we will demand the right to protest. And we will defend Violet and others like her for as long as it takes until these laws are removed and this government is removed. In our industry, we've fought for years like other unions, many, many years against these laws, against different laws. We've protested. That's how we achieve things in this country. We have built this country on protesting. If we can't protest, what do we have? Nothing. I'm going to say it's disgraceful that we have to stand here today in support of Violet, who's sitting in this building behind us, facing 15 months of prison, already been sentenced for stopping traffic for 25 minutes. Every one of us here now is breaking these laws. Every one of us. This is a disaster. And as David said before me, we need to vote these bastards out. If they're gonna bring laws in to block people up, civilians up in this country, whether unionists or just ordinary civilians out there, protesters, we need to vote these bastards out.
We cannot have laws like this in our land. We will achieve nothing. You've only got to go for two miles down the road and you've got the rocks. If we didn't protest back in the day with the BLF, that would not exist. Like many buildings. You wouldn't have Hyde Park here, you'd have buildings passing right through the city. So let's build on this. Let's support Violet and the other protesters that have been locked up or have been charged and are waiting sentence now, because no doubt they would love to lock them up as well. I'd just like to finish on everybody that's going to chant going to Free Violet now. Free Violet now! Free Violet now! This is not a police state. We have the right to demonstrate. This is not a police state. We have the right to demonstrate. Our fight is not with the police. That's what the politicians want to happen. They want to fight on the streets with the people that we employ with our taxes to keep us safe and use our own police force against us. It's not going to work because we're not stupid. The real architects of this are up there in Parliament House. They're not here. They're not here doing their dirty work. They want the paid muscle to do it. And I say that in acknowledgement for this, that it's tough enough being a police officer, and I should know. I've known many police officers in my time, and the vast majority do a fantastic job and put their lives on the line, as we saw tragically yesterday. We do not want our police force being the ones ramrodding our democracy. That is not why we pay their wages, and that's why we're here. What we want is to avoid a slippery slope. The problem with slippery slopes is that most Australians don't see it until they're halfway down the slide. And that is what's happening here. Unless we move and act quickly while we can, what you'll find is we'll be a lot further down that slippery slope and it's much quicker going down than going up. We know that from experience. The final point I want to make is this. If the fine, if the penalty for the crime, and that crime being stopping traffic for half an hour, is eight months jail, what do we give this government for shutting down the entire rail network for a whole day, a whole day without warning? If that's the crime, if that's the crime, what's the punishment? But of course, that isn't the point. The point of all of this is to put democracy on trial, to take rights from citizens. Citizen X, I'll call it, because Violet could be any one of us. Violet could be any Australian in the dock today. And if we're not careful, we don't know who the next ones are going to be. We'll stand with you and we'll keep fighting. And we assure you this, that even though a trade unionist undergoing union business is not on trial today, it won't be long before they are unless these laws are stopped. We've got to stand together and stop the cynical attempts to divide us. Good luck with this one, Violet, and we'll be with you until these laws are repealed. And uh, that was a piece that was put together and contributed by Vivian Langford from the Climate Action Show, which you can hear on 3CR and podcast, uh, 5 o'clock on Monday uh, nights. Uh, She was outside the court, uh, the uh, bail hearing for... Uh, Violet Coco, the climate activist who was uh, charged uh, and uh, then given 15 months jail, which has been whittled down now to um, a restrictive bail um, uh, situation. Um, And I wanted to find out more about uh, what uh, 
um, the reaction is amongst um, activists uh, about the situation. And I'm talking now to Lily Barto from Frontline Action on Coal. G'day, Lily. On the show. Yeah, thank you for uh, taking time. Now, of course, we know that uh, Frontline Action on Coal has uh, brushed right up against this particular mm. issue, especially after the uh, successful stopping of the uh, ports in uh, Newcastle. Tell us about what's going on for you guys. Uh, well, Frontline Action on Coal is... Um a little bit dormant at the moment because it's uh, kind of wrapped up and um, <clears throat> in Queensland there and uh, will no doubt re-emerge somewhere else. Uh, but, yeah, we definitely did come up against the pointy end of some of these uh, repressive legislative changes that were pretty squarely designed to, you know, target activists and uh, they were pretty much made in response to the success of community-led campaigns against mining projects, yeah. Yeah, it was the success that really galled them, right? Oh, definitely. You know, like, they wouldn't... It's it's quite a process, you know, to introduce a new law. Um, and it's uh, not it's not easy to pass a law in this country, but um, if it's to protect the interests and the power of the wealthy, then, uh, you know, the parties seem to be able to put their differences aside and, you know, get that passed right on through. The, yeah, and uh, use the um, uh, the sweetener for the public, that it's all about uh, reducing inconvenience to people and demonising climate activists. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think there's, uh, there's three things that the media and... Um, well, the politicians, but with uh, the acquiescence of mainstream media, have done very successfully. And uh, one of those is to conflate inconvenience with violence. (laughs) So they've done a very good job of talking about disruption or inconvenience or something that, you know, just causes a bit of a kerfuffle with violence and terrorism. And that's straight out of, you know the post-9-11 playbook of, like, if if you call whatever it is you don't like terrorism, then you can do basically anything to combat it. Um, Another thing that they've managed to do that I think is quite an interesting little inversion is that they've mischaracterised disruptive acts of protest and subversion as being, like, an attack on a city and its people Uh. when... Grassroots activism is necessarily done by the people, right? Like, which so, which is actually exactly the same tactic uh, employed against unions. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And they talk about it like it's an attack on a population. When you know the the message that the activists are sending that represents a current of thought that is alive and constantly evolving inside a population. So it's not. That doesn't make sense to, you know, characterise it as like an attack on Sydney or something like that. And what was the third thing that they've done? Oh, and, and then the third one that they really like to do is they like to shift the terms of the debate. Um, and the reason that they do that is they, like, they want to avoid talking about why people protest. So I'm really grateful to be on this show because activists are rarely afforded the opportunity to speak for themselves in the media the media generally tend to go to other people for comment, but not the activists themselves. Um, And when the journalists do question the activists directly, 
usually the questions are about their choice of tactic rather than what they were actually demanding or what they were opposing. Yeah. So they'll ask questions like, you know, do you think it's fair and valid for you to be allowed to disrupt traffic because of <laughs> your agenda or something like that, you know? Because what they don't want to talk about is what were you asking for? Mm. Because what they were asking for was really reasonable and most people <laughs> would agree with it, right? So that's absolutely not what they want to have the conversation about. They want to shift the terms of debate to talk about, like, the validity of the tactic that was employed as opposed to the message that they were actually trying to send. Do you think that, um, just as a matter of interest, that there is a generational change, that in actual fact it's gone much further than the uh, white men in suits and uh, their enablers uh, to the point that uh, the, the, this issue of climate and, what ne- and the future uh, for a younger generation just trumps all this... Um, you know, smoke and mirrors that's being produced by the legal system and the mainstream media? I think so, in the sense that, you know, um, support for stronger climate action is obviously, like, higher. It's extremely high in the age group of, you know, like 18 to 40-year-olds and stuff. Um, But I think there's also, you know, the climate movement is also full of older people who don't buy it either. That's so, you right. know, and, you know, shout outs to them. I don't, I don't want to acknowledge them, too, because, you know, like older people are a really important and beautiful section of our movement. And, you know, that's, you know, who we look to for guidance. And they're often the people who are, you know, showing up to support people at court and stuff like that. So, you know, like I think, yeah, definitely there is a generational change happening in the broader population around the way that people perceive the urgency of the ecological crisis that we're facing. But, yeah, definitely don't want to give shout-outs to, you know, people like the Knitting Nanas and, you know, Grandparents for Climate Action and, you know, all of those people who are, you know, putting putting really good work in and, and you know, showing up for people. Do you think that um, the, uh, the experiences that you guys are having with uh, uh, the police, um, and, I mean, it's hard to describe to people what it's like to be at the the pointy end of a police attack and that the pyjama brigade, you know, the ones that go around like the critical response team and all mm-hmm. the all the other stuff that happens, you know, where people are, at one moment you're a citizen and in the next minute you're just fair game. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's hard to, uh, to describe this. Um so it's absolutely essential that people stand outside court for people like Violet Coco and, and for the activists who were gathered up during the uh, um, campaign in uh, Newcastle um, Coal Terminal. Because, I, yeah, I mean, you've got people, compatriots, who have been, are in jail, right? Um, not currently. Oh, good. <laughs> I do have, yeah, <laughs> thankfully. So... Um, uh, few, a couple of people, so uh, a couple of young fellows called Max and Tim spent That's right. three weeks in custody earlier this year after they were refused bail, which is really uh, like unheard of 
for a non-violent offence. Like, it's, it's actually very rare for people to be refused bail. So just for listeners who maybe don't know what that means, that means uh, you'll, so you'll be arrested, you're taken into custody, and then you're given a court date, and it's usually in, like, two or three weeks. And then between your arrest and your court date, if you're let out of custody, then you're on bail is the terminology. That's, like, what it's called. Um, or you can be held in remand. So that's what it means when they refuse, uh, re- they refuse you bail and they keep you in custody until you've gone through your court case. So you, at the point where you're on bail or not, you've been refused bail, you haven't even been found guilty yet. You've just been charged, right? The court has not even determined whether or not you're guilty. Um, which is why it's fairly rare for people to be held in remand. And the only reason that the legal system sort of permits for you to do that is if you present a danger to the community, um, which cannot be managed by giving, putting conditions on your bail. So you can have conditions on your bail that might be things like, say, if you were um, arrested protesting at a coal port, you might not be allowed within two kilometres of a coal port. <laughs> Uh, you know, you might. Yeah, then it's pretty. We see it a lot that uh, if you were arrested with somebody else or with a number of other people, they might say you're not allowed to communicate with those other people. Um, that's called a non-association order. Um, and yeah, there've been also like I. I just want to touch on bail as a um, nexus of sort of where the police are majorly overstepping their power because I think. It is a part of the story that's uh, really not getting a lot of airtime. Obviously, we're also seeing really draconian, authoritarian, anti-protest legislation being passed. But bail is an area where police have a huge amount of discretion to essentially just make up bail conditions. Uh And the Bail Act, as it is, pretty specifically and explicitly states that they're not supposed to be punishments. Because it's not the police's job to punish you under the legal system, right? The separation of powers, all of that, it is the court's job to determine what an appropriate punishment is, not the police. But what they've worked out they can do is they can use them to punish people by curtailing their liberties really, really severely while they're on bail and then drag out their court case so you might be on bail because, you know, also uh, the local court system is so horrendously, you know, like underfunded and all the, you know, so it takes months and months sometimes to get your day in court. Um, And the police can also just turn up and go, oh, we're not ready. We need to adjourn. (laughs) And then they just get another date in a couple of weeks. And, you know, and that's like frowned upon if you do it a whole bunch of times in a row by the court. But uh, we do see police prosecutors doing it quite a bit. Um, so this is just an on. I mean, I did think this through too. This curtailing of people's personal freedom and association—it's uh, yeah. But what they're doing is putting your lives in the hands of the police. Well, yeah, and they're they're using what they've um, figured out they can do. I think is they can disrupt the organising itself through the use of things like non-association conditions, through saying, you know, you have to uh, report every so often, like it might be weekly. Some people have had it every day. They have to go and report 
uh, to their local crop shop. Um, and some people currently are on bail uh, in New South Wales who have been told they cannot use end-to-end encrypted messaging apps. So they're not allowed to use WhatsApp, they're not allowed to use Signal, Wire, like any of those communication platforms. Yep. Um, yeah. And do, do these you... are just like unheard of. These yeah, are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. incredibly like restrictive, insane bail conditions. Um, and it's because the police can just sort of do that and then you have to actually go to court to get them varied. Yep. So the other thing you can do is refuse to sign them while you're in custody and then you're held overnight and then you're slotted in to the next available, um, like, sort of slot in court the next day and you go before a magistrate and you can um, Argue your you point. can challenge the bail conditions that the police have tried to impose on you there. Yeah. And then the magistrate can either change them, uphold them and leave them as they are or throw them out entirely. Yeah, but that um, that means that you have to be uh, um, aware of what's going on. Exactly. You have to know that that option is available to you, and you also it requires you to stay overnight in custody. And lots of activists do choose to do that, um, to challenge this kind of, like, punitive use of bail conditions. But, um, you know, a lot of people... If you're in custody and someone says, if you sign this piece of paper, you can go. Yeah, yeah, it's you're frightening. You're going to sign the piece of paper, right? Like, yeah, yeah, it's frightening. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's frightening. You can see why. And it's terribly brave of people to uh, stand up. But what's at stake is um, the world and the future. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that we always say, or, you know, a lot of uh, people from Slack would often say when we would be questioned about the risks involved in protesting or whatever the legal risk is like well you know it's dwarfed by the risk of doing nothing mm, yeah it is yeah and uh, these uh, time wasters these time wasters with their money grabbing um focus is just so annoying <laughs> uh, you're telling me yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i mean like the hypocrisy of it is really laid bare when you look at what the companies tend to be fined and the, the consequences that the, the corporations face when they break the law. So, you know, all this law and order rhetoric, all this stuff about, you know, inconveniencing the public, all of that kind of stuff, you know, that just absolutely doesn't apply when it's the corporations who break the law. Like, yeah. you know, we've seen in, you know, many campaigns, we've seen activists be fined more than the company for breaching you know, water standards, you know, polluting waterways, things like that, like breaching their environmental regulations or exploring without a lot, li- you know, unlicensed gas exploration, things like that. They get fined literally like less than the activists do. Yeah, yeah. It's it's real question of which side are you on, humanity mm. or uh, greed? Absolutely. And mm. I think they've made it pretty clear. <laughs> yeah, well, the fight goes on. Is there anything else you want to say, Lily, that I've left out? I suppose just one thing that I'd um, like to say is don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to participate in protests. So while, you know, we are trying to draw attention to this, like, creeping authoritarianism that is happening, you know, right right under our noses, basically, we're strong, we're strong enough together. Like, we are stronger than their repression. And so I don't want anyone who's listening to be 
frightened away from protesting or from participating in democracy, as is your right. Um, I want people to feel, you know, empowered to stand together because that is the only thing that is going to roll back this yeah. trend. Yeah, yeah, you're completely correct. Uh, thank you very much for talking to us today, Lily. Uh, thank you so much for having me. And that was Lily Bartow from, uh, formerly from, uh, well, it's in hiatus at the moment, Frontline Action on Coal, and uh, talking about uh, frontline uh, experience of uh, repressive, the repression of climate activists. But the fight goes on. Uh, coming up next on Solidarity Breakfast is This Is the Week That Was. A week solidarity, Becky Team Listener, when what an exciting end to the year. The revolution is nigh. So nigh, we could be living in socialist utopia when we return in February. Expressed beautifully in an understated way by a bloke called Saul Cliverdick, energy analyst with Credit Suisse. The price cap represents a declaration of war on the gas industry, one step short of nationalising the gas sector. Oh, listener, if only. And said, toss us the prophet, Supremo Kevin Gall, lots of prophets, screamed, this Soviet-style policy is a form of nationalisation. Now, we don't want big Supremo Anthony Albinguzi to morph into a Stalin, but a form of nationalisation? Oh, again, listener, if only. The national disaster for the greatest little economic order of them all was summed up P1 headline Monday in their daily Trublawazi Capitalist Review. Global gas sector damns Labour. An editorial same day, Labour's plan to make the energy crisis worse. Subtle, but we got the message. When every major resource behemoth screams socialism run riot, we know it's serious, a summer revolution. With the government countering weekly that the gas is the gas and why should Trublawazis pay international inflated prices for their own gas? What a pathetic argument when there's a super-duper obscene windfall profit to be made. The very stuff of the greatest economic order of them all. Woodside with profit supremo Meg O'Neill, before profits, has been leading the brave resistance to this communist revolution. Meg, we asked Meg, prices were lower than $12 before the pandemic, yet you were making huge profits then, so, so you'll still be making huge profits. That ignores the fact that we have this chance to benefit from great opportunities like war and destruction. And the super-duper obscene windfall profits are good for all of us. What, for the consumers who struggle to pay or can't pay their bills? Then they should earn more. No, I said good for all of us. Peg did point out that this attack by the most anti-caring business class government in human history would terminate the essential transition on which gas is so critical. Uh, transition to renewables, to requiring no gas or coal at all. To the critical transition for gas and coal to gas and coal. World pollution giant ExxonMobil Capital described the disaster as reckless free market intervention. But we butted. It will benefit the consumers whom the market has been failing. Don't display your abysmal ignorance. The markets have been working magnificently for those for whom the markets are designed to work magnificently, those for whom it exists. But we butted again. The government is attempting to make life a little easier for consumers, even if 
they, they won't get lower costs. They'll just uh, not rise as much as, as usual. Governments have no right to interfere in the markets. The government's role is to ensure the markets operate in the interests of those for whom it operates. Uh, so the government should not distort the markets by, say, handing you trillions in other people's taxes in corporate welfare. We support massive cuts in welfare to the undeserving, but what we enjoy, government support for the markets, is not welfare. You're displaying your abysmal ignorance again. Government support for the great corporate sector is an integral part of the markets working magnificently. An insert pulled out of our newspapers this week with the Starvation Army appeal appealing for our hard-earned. When all hope is lost, it says. Spot on. Where the Starvation Army is concerned, all hope is lost. Suppose it's not in their interest to ask to analyse why, quote, the poorest families in Trublawazi are struggling to survive. Better the Starvation Army survives. On which, talk about hitting a great man when he's down. Poor former Big Supremo Scummo. Well, before he's down, back in 2015, his then-department reported that legislation would be required to make Scummo's robo-debt crusade lawful. And would you believe it forgot to tell him, forgot to tell the minister. So two months later, poor Scummo told Parliament no legislation was required. And when the Administrative Appeals Tribunal kept finding the scheme unlawful again, no one bothered to tell Scummo, who somehow wasn't aware of the tribunal cases. And anyway, he told the His Most Gracious Majesty Royal Commission this week that his scheme was just a scaled-up version of what the Socialist government had been doing. So clearly it was the Socialist's fault and his department's fault for forgetting to tell him. And when it comes to a royal commission or a great man, a great Christian man like Scummo, whose honesty is renowned, we know who to believe. If we have any doubts, ask his close mate, his close ami, the French Big Supremo. As some consolation, Scummo can assuage his distress at problems that had absolutely nothing to do with him. He was only the minister responsible, kept in ignorant bliss. Consolation by sharing a few malt scotches with the boys down at the club, because he's been nominated for membership of Sydney's Australian club by another former big supremo, little Johnny Howhard, and former caring business class MP Bruce Baird. While little Johnny and former number one train killer and her most gracious majesty's man in true blue Aussie, Peter Cause Graves, some months ago nominated current party supremo constable Peter Duffer for the club. So imagine the in-depth empathetic conversations over those malt scotches or cognacs and thankfully membership will put an end to those silly claims that poor Scummo has a women problem as the all-male Australian club voted 63 to 37% last year to keep women out. So therefore, he won't have a women problem down at the club. He might have just a bit of a problem with the final His Most Gracious Majesty Commission finding, clearly biased because the commissioner is, after all, a woman. So poor Scomo may have women problems after all. At least the boys at the club can console him. Oh, when he told the hearing, he approached welfare as a, sorry, as a copper, a cop. 
Not sure he needed to tell us that, because as a dedicated, caring Christian, he knew the undeserving are better off, left to the mercy of other great dear baby Jesus practitioners like the Starvation Army. They will display their Christian love, deploring how any true Christian, true lover of the dear baby Jesus, could treat those seeking refuge as cruelly as Mary and naive Joseph were treated, forced to give birth in a manger. Naive Joseph, incidentally, because he still believes she was a virgin, but aware they would never treat those seeking refuge so cruelly. As our succession of ministers for concentration camps raise a wire and sink the boats have displayed in their Christian love thy neighbour treatment of asylum seekers, many seeking refuge from two blue Aussie invasions on the coattails of our master, the US of. In a sensible move, the socialist government has appointed, has appointed Shaborn McKenna as chair of Troublawazi Post. Shaborn, a Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin sidekick to Lockie, and a director of Fox News, Fox Sports and Sky News. In other words, bringing a balanced, unbiased view to the public sector, including, quote, an ambitious plan to modernise Troublawazi Post which in corporate speak sounds like very, very bad news for True Blue Aussie Post. Finally, the year ends as it started, with evil unions still refusing to know their place in the world. This week, calling for the abolition of the Productivity Commission, that fine neoliberal advisor established by no lesser friend of the workers than the aforementioned little Johnny Howhart. The evil unions claiming it peddles failed economic models of privatisation and deregulation like slashing evil union power and scrapping plans for multi-employer bargaining because that would see constant strike disruption. The con mission itself said the suggestion to abolish this critically important economic advisor was madness. That put the ACTU in its place. And good news, the government says it has no intention of abolishing the, the commission. Evil unions interfering where it is none of their business, because what do workers know about the delicate flower that is the economy? Seriously, if they really, really knew, that could be it for the delicate flower. Not a bad note to finish on. So, listener, thanks for putting up with this nonsense all year. Enjoy the break, and let's all keep ourselves nice. Good morning. This New Year's Eve, Yarra's Edinburgh Gardens hosts a variety of fun, family-friendly activities. Featuring funk pop artist Leilani Lafleur, comedy icons Tripod, a pop-up cinema and food trucks from 2pm to the countdown. And don't forget to avoid bringing glass, take home excess rubbish and recycling, be COVID safe, respect the neighbours and clean up after your fur friends. Enjoy New Year's Eve at Edinburgh Gardens, Fitzroy North. Brought to you by Yarra City Council, a 3CR supporter. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on this Saturday on 3CR, your community radio station. And in the studio, we've got Judy, Judith Peppard. Uh, Judith, you've been doing a whole range of stuff with Earth Matters, haven't you? I have, and uh, the show coming up is actually looking at biodiversity because, of course, there's the big uh, convention, UN convention, COP15 on in Montreal as we speak. So I'll be speaking with one of the activists who's gone over 
to that conference. And then I'll be looking at, you know, how things have gone wrong, really, around protected areas here in Australia. That's very interesting. And I'll also be chatting with, as I did this week, uh, Rodney Carter about the Forest Garden and the new strategy that has been launched just on Tuesday. Now, uh, yeah, just maybe some background before we hear from Rodney. So JARA, and that's D-J-A-A-R-A, also known as the Jajawurrung Clan's Aboriginal Corporation, launched their forest gardening strategy on Tuesday. That's December 13th, in case anyone's listening back (laughs) next week. Um, The strategy builds on and adds to, adds detail um, to an earlier document called the, and I'm going to work on my pronunciation here, um, Dalkunya Ja. I'm, I'm working on my pronunciation, or the Jaja Wurung Country Plan. And this plan, this is a bigger plan, this is kind of the philosophy, which is kind of based in traditional knowledge. The strategy adds detail. The strategy tells more about how that's all going to go forward. So I I was sad I couldn't get to Bendigo for the launch on Tuesday, but I was really lucky because I know it was a busy day for everyone involved. I was really lucky to speak with Rodney Carter, who's the CEO of the Jajawurung group. And I began by asking Rodney how to pronounce the name of the forest gardening strategy in Jajawurung language. Here's Rodney. The forest gardening strategy in Jajawurung language is the Gal Gal Dalgunya. The forest gardening strategy is about Jajawurung's ideology and worldview of how landscape should be managed. A document that sits over this strategy is our Dalkunya Jar country plan. That has a limit in terms of what's communicated in detail around healing country and healing people. So this strategy in a far greater detail describes how the Jajawurung people, my people, want country to be managed. And you're using a cultural landscape lens to help bridge differences between Indigenous and Western worldviews, between natural resource management and caring for country. Can you tell me about what those differences are? There's ways we make decisions just as people, uh, as humans, and largely and rightfully, you know, we defer to data, to the modern forms of sciences. And what we've seen, I think, with the challenges through our modern use of landscape modification, uses of natural resources, that's not really, from my people's view, a cultural way to do things. A cultural way to do things is described as how do you put the people back into landscape as gardeners of the environment, as tending to the garden. What we strongly believe, Judith, is that it's sensible and very purposeful to have those as descendants of the creators of landscape, what my ancestors did, back at country interacting and this is where I think we can be clever with a a more emotional or or spiritual connection, cultural knowledge that's a bit more personal and intimate through our observations and science in a modern sense can sit beside that, not describe it as we're a living experiment, we're not a closed environment and 
science role, the modern science, is, is now to actually collect data and look at what we're, we're doing and we believe that maybe we're part of the solution to deal with climate change, survival, adaptability, better species management in biodiversity and ecosystem function. The time is right to do that because... We haven't been doing that in Australia for 200 years. It certainly is time. And at an international level, of course, we have the big biodiversity conference on the COP15. And this is exactly what's coming up, that First Nations peoples, First Peoples knowledge is really important for protecting the environment. So it's highly relevant both internationally and uh, Australia as well. How long did it take you to develop the strategy? Our country plan is been around for a number of years now and what's happened is the need by others to understand maybe what we're saying as a First Nations group with more description, aim, objective, structure. What happened was a catastrophic event with some storm damage at country where very old Matingaguli ancestors, the trees, were thrown across landscape, you know, how a leaf is just blown by a gust of wind and when we went to country and we seen the country being unwell last year, we thought, no, we actually need to do something. We can't stand by, uh, not not idly, but in in a disempowered position. So modern things that we do require us now. We we need to create some form of documentation that articulates what we want to do. So for the last nearly uh, year, we've been toiling away at this document, engaging our own mob engaging industry, government and others. Now, this is our first attempt at trying to describe this strategically and what we want to do going forward. And I can tell from what you're saying, it's been a huge effort. I understand you collaborated with kind of Western scientists uh, on the project. So I'm wondering, what was that collaboration like? It was, for me, a bit eye-opening in that how much others actually wanted to hear our views and our voice. Science is a tool. It's actually not the decision maker in itself. I make decisions, we make decisions sometimes, and with good intent, we want want to do the good things, and sometimes we might make mistakes. And it was just so empowering for us that others wanted us to put forward ideas, our ideology proposed this vision, and others just seen that it was really fit for purpose. It was really suitable for now and for us to do things, I'd say differently, but also based on ancient knowledge that for 60,000 years, like it's got to be good. Let's try and stick to the, the ingredients around that, that recipe. And when I describe it as ingredients, the only thing missing a lot of the times is, is my people. The absence of my people being able to lead, suggest, be involved and you know do good things. Yeah, I understand that. So you're saying this is going to be an experiment, you're going to try some things, which is really important. You've developed it over the past year, but based on, you know, tens of thousands of years of knowledge. Mm. What are you hoping to discover, I guess, through the strategy? What will the strategy offer you and, and all of us? I think it'll give us some focus and it's suggestive of some methodologies to use modern technologies in landscape and forest management to create some sort of physical ease, but also efficiency in what we do. So for us, in forms of forest management, you know, in gardening, the environment, forest gardening, to 
go out, connect with people with those trees that can and should be ancestors, grow with bigger canopies now to shelter and shade and create a protective environment now in forests to become woodlands to help us, again, gardening, create uh, our diversified abundance of food and fibre plants to then bring fire management. Our Jandak we as a tool, as a form of ongoing uh, tending and management of landscapes. So cultural thinning is something that's really important for us and to partner with others is not the forestry of old. It's a new way of doing it. And the way I describe it too, Judith, if we, we care for country and we heal country, now in its abundance, it can gift us things that we need. And if we need timber as an example... It's because how we tend the garden and make it more productive that we get timber afforded. We don't go into a forest driven by demand and need and maybe even greed in some instances and we take. It's really flipping that on its head and looking at country in a totally new way that's founded on ancient knowledge. And it sounds like you're giving to country and country is giving to you. Exactly. It's, it's about reciprocity, that reciprocal nature of you care for your, your home, your homeland, Mother Earth, and if it can afford it, then it will gift you things. So it's really flipping these ideas. I think us as modern people, when we think of natural resources and we talk about sustainability and we push that to its limits in the way that the country is managed as opposed to being tended and lived with. It just sounds so much like this is the way we need to go go forward with respect, with respect for land, with respect for forests. Where can people get their hands on the strategy? Because I'm sure lots of people will be interested in seeing it. Is it easily available? Yeah, so we've got a limited number of prints, but it's in the public domain. So it's gone live on our webpage at uh, all the w's.jajawurung.com.au. We invite people to look at the document, read it, talk to others, talk to us, as we try and mobilise a greater effort for us to be actively involved and I think even passively involved, Judith, because I think this is a really defining moment for us in trying to manage country, heal country. The idea of forest gardening, can you just say briefly what that is? Well, forest gardening, we think the two words, we understand as people, what is forest? It's trees, it's parkland in a sense. It's a degree of just being present and it shouldn't be isolated. And gardening, we understand what we do ourselves in our own home where we actually tend to the garden and we look at what's invasive, what is there for us to usefully use. So we're present as people and forest gardening is really about that. For the first time ever, not treating Australia anymore or our country in central Victoria as wilderness. It was never wilderness. So we want it to be a garden again. We want to tend that garden and, and we want all people that live and visit our homelands to participate in enjoying what we will do together. Oh, there you go. Rodney Carter, fantastic stuff. Yeah, I mean, what a wonderful invitation from uh, Rodney Carter there. 
Um, and Rodney is the CEO of the Jaja Burung Group, and and I'm very much looking forward to finding out more. And and I'm hoping to go up to Bendigo and have a visit and and have a look, you know, at, at what's happening. But it's a key thing, isn't it? It was never a wilderness, isn't it? I mean, it's almost like Terra Nullius has been applied to the land, almost like it wasn't. You know, no one was looking after it. It was wilderness, and what Rodney has very clearly told us. It was never wilderness. It was land. It was country that was being cared for, looked after, and and organized too. Oh, but also it flips it all on the head because it's not what humans want. It's that and Mother Nature, well, Mother Earth, as he calls it, uh, calls her, um, can afford to give. I know. I mean, isn't that were, a great way of putting it? Yeah, there were so many beautiful ideas in that conversation with Rodney. And uh, as I've been following, you know, the COP15 Biodiversity Conference, where, of course, Indigenous peoples have been making lots of noise and and standing up and and demonstrations in the streets from particularly First Nations peoples in Canada about, you know, the need for their voice and view of nature, view of their worldview, their understanding, their knowledge to be taken into consideration at this international level. And as I was listening, as I was having that wonderful conversation with Rodney, you so much resonated with what I was hearing from the international conference. I mean, it's, you know, he yeah, so many good things. Yeah, it also makes full circle because uh, uh, in the longer piece that Vivian Langford gave us about outside the court of... Uh, of the hearing for uh, Violet Coco, the end piece was actually from uh, uh, Am- Amnesty International because we're talking about incursions in uh, uh, our democracy against demonstrating, but what's happening in other countries is that First Nations um, uh, people are the ones who are being murdered for defending country. Yes, and there's a whole lot of uh, complications. I mean, it's kind of overwhelming, the information that's coming out of the conference, because one of the things that people are worried about, they're wanting to get, you know, 30% of land and sea a framework which protects that. But for some First Nations peoples, and I think particularly in one of the countries in Africa, they've seen land set up for protection, for conservation, and the First Nations people being moved off. Yes. You know, so, so that's been uh, that's been one of the debates that's been going on. The other, of course, is financing, which is very much an issue in Australia. So you designate particular areas for protection. But, you know, where's the funding to actually do that work? Because uh, what, what we're really saying is that capitalism doesn't see anything except a, as a transactional arrangement rather than uh, this much broader understanding of uh, uh, conservation that requires humans to, uh, to know humans to know their place. And to know the country too. I mean, well, that's right. I mean, yeah, your relative understand. place to the uh, living world. That's yeah. what I'm really getting at. Yes, yes, I, I understand that. And it was so interesting when you were speaking um, to the last person, I'm sorry, who you spoke to about activism and the repression. Uh, Lily Bato. When you were speaking to Lily, one of the things you said was, you know, what's the biggest inconvenience to the public? <laughs> And, uh, of course, climate, what could be a bigger inconvenience yeah. than what's going on? And the other thing you said is what's at stake is the world. And I thought, yes, 
that you know that is what we're talking about at COP15 and that's what Rodney Carter was talking about too is how we engage with our world in a more compassionate way respect traditional knowledge respect mother nature or you know the earth respect country and i felt like that you know really encapsulated a lot of the conversation this morning yeah 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 it's it's a good uh program to uh, topic to finish the year on because uh, this is the uh, uh, last program for Solidarity Breakfast this year. We go into summer programming. There will be some new stuff and thank you very much uh, Judith for coming in and sharing that interview. It was absolutely illuminating perfect end to the program. Well thank you so much and it's a pleasure always to come in and have a chat with you Annie really. L- great show. Love it. Well, that's it. Uh, We spoke to Jeff Waters, offshore gas campaigner from Friends of the Earth, who laid out why it's an outrage that the energy sector should want more money from the public purse uh, so that we don't have to pay higher gas prices. Um, We heard from uh, Vivian Langford, who was outside the court when... uh, Violet Coco was given her bail conditions rather than going to jail. Lily Bartow from uh, Frontline Action on Coal gave us a activist view of the uh, in, the legal encroachments on our liberties. Um, this is the week that was. Kevin was completely on point, and Judith Pippard uh, looking at uh, the fantastic uh, launch of the uh, forest strategy, Jar uh, Jar. Ruang in Bendigo who have uh, gifted to us. So you should go to their um, website and find out more about what it is that they're talking about. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents and this is a fantastic song to finish with. Uh, There's a slight language uh, warning so if you're worried about that sort of thing, cover your ears. Bye for now. Yeah. This goes out to my moody mob down there fighting in the pillager against Santos. If you ever want to grow a pair, now is the time. Hack your genetics and let our powers combine. Uncut to planet, you're ready, so yell out the battle cry. Rock up to fight, they were about to die, but they scatter like flies. Stack on courage, black fellas flourish with knowledge. Attack the ribs and go scuttle quick up in the forest. Fuck the monarch, we gonna wanna see some heart from ya. Beaten hard, come on, bruh. This ain't the end of the road, it's the start of the beaten path. We're defending our home, and they got it wrong right when they said it's in the past. But I'll sit on a coal mine, setting up for a long fight, and it's a constant reminder that. They're never going like someone rocking the boat They thought we're not gonna know We're stopping it though Pull up, put a lock on it Then hopping and go Their profits are dropping They're up in smoke This is the G up you need bruh I wanna see ya Complete the procedure Here comes a procedure For your runs and their features I can see it from their tear ducks This is the G up you need bruh I wanna see ya Complete the procedure Here comes a procedure For your runs and their features I can see it from their tear ducks I'm the knowledge keeper, so forage deeper under the symbolic tree for the sweeter eaters while paying homage to the teachers that reared us into fearless motherfuckers. I was a peer to the grassroots leaders, believing that they were proper, speaking down to coppers, teaching how to prop us up against town officers. Guns mean nothing to a mob of pissed off black fellas, ready to turn a city to a stack of ashes. Power and numbers, the cow for cover. Eleventh hours clicked over this conscript 
us now, brothers. No problems with skin colours, we have more in common than what you think. It's the government doing it purposely, keeping us divided with our undivided attention, focused on football and tennis, how we can pretend this ain't big. This has to get sorted, fight for your kids' inheritance. It's fresh water, they're gonna need something to drink. This is the G up you need, bruh. I wanna see ya complete the procedure. Here comes the procedure, fear runs in the features, I can see it from the beer ducks. This is the G up you need, bruh. I wanna see ya complete the procedure. Here comes a procedure for your runs and the features. I can see it from the ear down. This is an annexation, man. The battle station. Stop being cattle and just rattle the cages. Break out of your chains and go, Django. Right on the main road. So say no, we don't play bro. Coppers and blank clothes, they know. How to cause a riot, distort the message with violence. Important that is silent. Your judges have a mistrial. You thought you had me with your non-jurisdictional, proven fictional system. Unqualified ministers send them to prison. Use them as cannon fodder. Lamps to the slaughter. They're demanding orders. Expanding supporters never matter. To corner us, take us to court. We can afford it, exposing the rot, protecting our sons and daughters. You've chosen your course. Head on collision with a man on a mission. I stand on this wisdom. I'm planning on planting this vision. Listen, no understanding. So you panic and prison our children. Then they vanish. We've had it. We'll manage ourselves again. This is the G up you need, bruh. I wanna see ya complete the procedure. Here comes a procedure. Fear runs in the features. I can see it from the tear ducts. This is the G up you need, bruh. I wanna see ya complete the procedure. Here comes a procedure for your runs and the features. I can see it from the tear ducts. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.